And welcome to another episode of the Geopolitical Pivot. Your host, Samaj McDowell. Um, I am here, unfortunately, with the two Stooges, uh, Brian and Wayne Wright. However, we have a very special guest today who I respect a lot. Um, Mr. Wendell Bryant, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Oh, thank you. I'm glad that you came out today. Um, usually that's, that has become the culture here at the Geopolitical Pivot is where instead of me introducing you, you introduce yourself. So by all means, you know, you give us a little background snippet um, about who you are. Um, and from there, we'll just go on to our topics for today. Okay. Well, uh, I, my name is Wendell Bryant. I am currently a captain in the United States Army. Uh, I'm a field artillery officer, 13 Alpha, and I'm currently underneath a grad sub program where I am getting a master's in national security affairs for the Army, where I'll be transitioning to ORSA, which is Oper Operational Research and Systems Analysis, which is basically the Army's version of a think tank. And then... Uh, getting a promotion. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, excited to be here. And uh, this is definitely something I, I enjoy discussing. So. Fantastic. Now, Wainwright, I'm going to switch it over to you, my good sir. Sure, yeah. Well, on this podcast, we're going to be going over a couple of things. First off, we're going to be going over what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. We're going to transition into uh, the South Korean elections that have just occurred. Um, and if we have time, we're going to get into uh, Indian and U.S. relations pertaining to the quadrilateral, quadrilateral security review. Um, but going back to the Russian maneuvers in Ukraine, there's been quite a few developments. We kind of um, haven't had a chance to go over them over the past week. Um, but in f three of the four axes, right, um, the southern axis uh, through Crimea and the two northern ones around Kharkiv and Kiev, there have been some interesting developments, particularly around Kiev. Um, so two Russian uh, battalion tactical groups have renewed attempts to kind of encircle Kiev. And to the east, they've taken two of the major highways approaching the city. They've taken the E-40 and the E-373 highways. Um, so right now, only uh, the M-03, the H-01, the P-01, and the E-95 highways coming up from the south um, can uh, bring supplies and personnel into Kiev without it being directly controlled by the Russians. Um, and of course, that's going to cause sustainment issues, given that Kiev still has over 2 million inhabitants in there. So. It's going to be tough to keep them fed, watered, and uh, comfortable during this whole fiasco. Um, but, Brian, have you, have you done any more research on it? As you, you have to be slow down yes. on the beer. Yeah. Yeah. I, need, I need my drink. I yeah, need so my I drink for this. It's, it's a lot, yeah. So, that's, it's funny to say. Um, I ha I've been sort of um, keeping myself a little bit away from all of this just due to how crazy it's been over the past couple of weeks, especially we have a lot of people who, a lot of footage, a lot of stuff happening in this conflict. Um, the only thing I've known that's been happening is the Russians have been trying to renew their rocket and artillery efforts in specific cities like Kharkiv, Mariupol, etc. And that actually might go really well with uh, your, I guess your role, Wendell, if you want to explain anything. Uh, well, uh, I there was an announcement about uh, about 12 hours ago that uh, the Russians are going to run into a lot of bad weather in the next 48 hours. So the temperature is going to drop to about a negative 4 um, mm -hmm. Fahrenheit. Uh, so that's going to have a massive negative impact on just soldier operations. So uh, I was lucky enough to be stationed in Korea for a while. So I had a couple... You know uh, how cold it can get. Yeah, <laughs> and that was Korea. Yeah, right. that's, not, that's not Ukraine. That's right. not Russia. So 
to say I know how cold it gets over there, that's no. Mm. But uh, at least I, I tasted a little bit of it. <laughs> and, uh, oh, it was not fun. Soldiers do not want to go outside, obviously. Soldiers don't want to do those things. And of course they're going to do them anyways. Right. But you're just going to have a lethargic force. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not going to be nearly as rapid in its movements uh, or as accurate with its fires. Uh, how would how would the weather affect the rocketry and artillery barrages? Uh, no effect, okay, actually. Okay. So uh, their primary systems are towed and ro- rocket. So the uh, it's I can't the BM twenty one, which is their uh, rocket system, um, would have no no slowdown other than re reloading. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, be longer because no one wants to be outside trying to shove 40 rockets back into tubes. So the only problem in all of this would just basically be the soldiers freezing their asses off so they reload this thing. <laughs> well, and then getting the, the shells that you would need, right? Like if the sustainment lines can stay open. Yes. Uh, actually, honestly, it's not the shells that are the problem. So if you look at what Russia's doing with artillery, they're not really bombarding or leveling cities. They're mm-hmm. being very specific on what they hit. Uh, though it is uh, indirect uh, or unguided munitions, so they're going to accidentally hit things that they don't want to hit, mm-hmm. like schools and hospitals, like we've seen before. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's intention. Uh, and if it is intention, it's because of, we're, the Ukrainians are probably shooting from those buildings. Uh, so I'm more, more empowered to the Ukrainians. Uh, I'm on their side, but you know, uh, if you look at any insurgency, they use any advantage they possibly can have. And wow. a hospital exploding is perfect for propaganda that sure. the Russians are the demon. Uh, and so I understand where they're coming from, but I always hesitate when I see something that's blatant all over the news like that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it makes sense, especially because ever since this conflict started, the Ukrainians have owned the information space, and it, to a very mm-hmm. surprising degree, because most people expected Russia to be doing a lot better in this, because they've been doing pretty well in other areas trying to use disinformation on social media, etc. So it's, I, oh, I think social media naturally countered that. I, mm-hmm. Ukraine didn't have to do anything. We saw TikTok, YouTube, a couple other companies. Netflix is gone. Disney Plus is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russia is compartmentalized. And McDonald's it is gone. Yeah. Uh, honestly, that, no, literally, that was interesting to hear about because when Russia went to, when McDonald's went to Russia, that was a huge thing. And they have a bunch of McDonald's all over the country now. It's one of their biggest things in Europe. Uh, and over now. 800 in, in Russia alone. Uh, but as you're saying about the social media impacts of it, it's. Uh, so Zelensky didn't really have to do anything. Do anything when it came to honing the information space or conducting open information warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, just from being able to do not just speeches directly to the EU Parliament um, for EU membership for Ukraine, but also even I guess the conversations he was able to have with U.S. Congress, no, uh, the entire um, Senate, literally hear the him. entire Senate. Yeah, that was impressive. Um, while he's in Kiev. No, one while thing that's also interesting. I wish it was Zelensky is because he's been able to figure out how to use social media to project the message and show like his I guess show that fact that he is a leader in this crisis especially if you've seen some of the social media posts of videos and stuff did you see that uh, I think I guess it was sort of like Ukrainian propaganda of sorts no I guess it wasn't it was Russian propaganda uh, Putin was giving a speech or was in a conference and his hand waved through a microphone oh uh, it, was, it was green screened and then in response the president from Ukraine physically moved his mic to make sure everyone knew that it wasn't green screen. You know, it's, it's petty, but at the same time, he says, I'm physically here. I'm, I'm physically right, with you right. guys. Uh, so yeah. uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm not sure how much you know, familiarity with like leadership well, and control of small groups or big groups even. Uh, leader presence on the battlefield, presidential presence in the country matters. 
Uh, and actually, we had a couple professors uh, yesterday and today both say that if the uh, president of Ukraine had left, uh, Ukraine probably would have collapsed. But uh, his, I, his, his no, presence is actually that. definitely yeah, invigorating people's, people's patriots. What's interesting is, this is the thing I would say for Zelensky, and you can even compare this honestly with, uh, with Donald Trump. The thing, like Zelensky used to be part of the entertainment industry, and he was known in movies, he's, he was a comedian, he knows how to deal with the public. That's a good point. And, exclu- and it's the same thing with Donald Trump. As much as me, people, some people may not like him, some people like him, it doesn't matter. He knows how to deal, he knew how to deal with the public. Yeah, and yeah, I had this the same thing as Zelensky, and he is using his skills to his advantage to be able to connect to people worldwide through social media or from other areas to gain more support for Ukraine and its war effort. And that is something you people need to look at and understand. And it's working really well. well I agree. On the, I agree. on the public opinion side, it's working really well. I am worried, though, about Russia's advances in the south, you know, to try and cut Odessa and, and basically the Ukrainian coastline, turn it Russian. And then it's encirc- the Russian army's encirclement attempts um, around Kharkiv and Kiev. I mean, if those... if if the Russians can cut off the coastline and take Ukraine's two biggest cities, I don't, I don't care how much public morale and opinion Zelensky can keep and maintain. I mean, that's going to be a massive logistical loss yep. and even a morale loss as well. So, I mean, we have, we have to remember that even though Ukrainians are winning in cyberspace, right, in the virtual world, they're not necessarily winning where I think it counts the most on the battlefield. So we'll just have to see how this develops. Well, if you look at the battle lines, I'm not sure which which uh, source you're using as to what the current lines are. There hasn't really been any movement on either side. Uh, they've been going back and forth repeatedly. Uh, like Kiev specifically, they would take uh, the whatever the western highway is. They'd take it, then they'd lose it. They'd take it, then they'd lose it. They've done that like four or five that times. Additionally, Odessa, perfect example as well. It showed Russian forces occupied, and then they were gone. They mm-hmm. came back, and now they're gone again. Uh, and then also, uh, what's the, uh, you have Crimea and what's the other two regions that Russia controls? Uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, the, uh, the we're talking about the east or we're talking about the, the south? One, uh, east, east. Yeah, Donetsk and Lugansk. Donetsk. I can't um, pronounce it either. Yeah, the, uh, right. the territorial line that you see uh-huh. when Russia's mm-hmm. attempting to control the coast, mm-hmm. you'll see it connect and then it'll disconnect. Mm-hmm. And so there are Ukrainian forces st- still there mm-hmm. contesting that area. So what we're seeing is is Ukrainians are responding with forces to that's, ensure that those things don't happen. But, actually, you, but you don't need to, this is my point, you don't need to hold land permanently to disrupt the lines of communication there. You'd need to hold it sometimes, but if you can disrupt the movement of personnel, of, of, of currency, of sustainment, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, oh, it yeah. doesn't matter if you hold it permanently or not. So that, that's, that's what I'm saying. If the Russians can disrupt this, it, it doesn't matter if they necessarily hold it or not. They're accomplishing their goals without having to. But you consider the Ukraine really hasn't used the sea for a long time because once Crimea was taken, Russia kind of barred them. So they're not losing any loss by losing the coast. Obviously, having access matters. Yes, there's fishing and some trade, but we're not talking to the degree once that before they had when they had Crimea, they had a ton more access to the sea. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're not seeing a degradation there now. Kiev, on the other hand. If that were to be lost, and you're absolutely, that's like the head of a snake. Uh, you're going to see a collapse of command and control function, that kind of thing. But well, that, with the decentralization, going back to that thing where you're saying the Starlink, I can't remember which one you were talking about. The Starlink satellites. Yeah. So you can be a dis- decentralized. So even if you chopped off Kiev, you could technically still continue still operations. And uh, Russia attempted to hack Starlink, and it wasn't wasn't possible. You're saying it was no. It's 
I may have to get back and think about what I was thinking about. <laughs> but uh, no, like um, <laughs> where where were we when I tried to? Enter? Well, we were talking about public opinion, and I switched it. And then I talked about the coastline. Yeah, the coastline, and then there was something else. It was about the coast, which was, the only thing I could think of is just how Russia, just by owning Crimea, basically owns the coastline of Ukraine. Well, well the nuttiest thing, Odessa, is where a lot of these. Ukrainian nationals or you know foreign fighters are coming into the country mm-hmm. like uh-huh. Vasily Lomachenko well, well, who was a great uh, boxing champ for a long time that's how he got in that's how a lot of these other guys are coming in well Odessa is the largest port in all of <laughs> Odessa is the largest nope. port in all of Ukraine it's always been even if you look at Crimea the thing is Sevastopol was a huge port but I don't think it was as big as Odessa even even if you can look at Mikhailov which is the which is the port city that the Russians are trying to target next mm-hmm. that city it held a it held such a large port that it had shipyards that could build aircraft carriers for the Soviet Union uh, no argument there on size I'm talking about operation Oper- so, yeah. so the the port itself is massive mm-hmm. but if the Russians are barring you from being able to do your job well, the ships the jobs go away so you stop using that asset as nearly as much as you would have other oh, no no definitely it just it, I just think it looks very bad for Ukraine I mean if you're constantly losing land on the map it, it, it just I don't care what you can do in the cyberspace in the digital realm to gain propaganda points it's it's just not going to do much in the real world I'm not disagreeing there what, what I was attempting to say which I apparently did not uh, it's the alcohol was, it's, it's uh, what it is yes, this half beer has hit me I'm missing right. <laughs> um, is that uh, the territorial losses we're seeing are in flux we're sure. seeing the Ukrainians take it back then lose it take it back uh, so we're seeing some encroachments in certain places, but honestly, the lines are starting to like solidify in yeah. many ways. So that's where I'm like, wow, Ukraine has actually been up a, a fight. And um, this was a couple conversation. Actually, I think I had a conversation with you that we're actually seeing a near peer fight. This is a near peer fight, which is something we haven't yeah. seen in a long time. What yeah. is a near peer fight? Just uh, for those yeah. who don't understand, a uh, near peer fight is where you have equal assets. Now, obviously, if Russia were to breach the nuclear threshold then obviously it's no longer a near-peer fight. But Russia has limited the number of forces that enter and the type of forces. Uh, now, Russia might have some more advanced tanks like T-90s, mm-hmm. the T-14, some helicopters, the Mi-24, those kind of assets. Yeah. Yes, they're more advanced, uh, but they're using the same assets or same type of assets and same type of tactics the Ukrainians are trained to use. Mm-hmm. Now, in response, Ukraine knows guerrilla warfare tactics to counter those exact tactics. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a a to-and-fro that is relatively equal in nature. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have to consider that Ukrainians are fighting for their homes. The energy behind their fight mm-hmm. is help assisting them. So even if Russia were to bring, I think it has like technically 2 million people on the books when it comes mm-hmm. to the military. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, only about 220,000. Yeah. It's about are, close to yeah. a million, at least in active and reserves, it's about 2 million. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, but even, even with that, um, I think we're seeing a, a really good textbook mm-hmm. guerrilla warfare versus a conventional attack, which we haven't seen in a long time since Desert Storm, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're seeing a near peer guerrilla warfare, uh, which is well, once again something we just have. Does seen. that make sense though? Um, and that kind of goes to the point where there was a lot of speculations, uh, especially I guess with Kiev, is that uh, with the Russian invasion, that essentially the fall of Kiev would be seen in a large scale military occupation which i mean looking at where we're at now doesn't appear to be the case i mean a lot of people are talking about the 40 mile long com- well, russian convoy um that's heading towards kiev but as you brought up the um the weather 
um, that could be coming within days. Um, they're basically sitting refrigerators and freezers. Well, it's funny too with that convoy is what we've been noticing. But people, well, there's a few things I've been hearing about involving that convoy. One of the things I've been hearing about is obviously that some of those vehicles have not moved in ages until this most recent advance. Yeah. Because of that, the tires, I guess the rubber on the tires is weak, and that's why you see a lot of the tires popping. The other thing, though, is there's actually a YouTuber. Um, I forgot the name at the moment. If I can look it up now, I could probably tell you. But there's a YouTuber who... Talk, actually talks about some of the Russian tactics, and the one thing he talks about is how the Russian forces, what they generally do is they would, within conquered territories, they would set up certain, they would set up supply stations every so often, and like maybe, a, like a few miles, every 10 miles or so, or every um, certain amount of mileage, and they would try to resupply there, which also brings the question of if um, some of those stops are not truly just, oh, they're having logistic issues or something like that. So the way Russian logistical systems are designed are for 72-hour packages. So basically, here are 72 hours worth of resources, fight, and then by the time you get here, another 72-hour package will hit you. But because of the weakness we've mm -hmm. seen in the Russian logistical system, they'll hit that 72 hour and have to pause for 24 or 48 hours, which is enough time mm -hmm. for Ukraine to reorganize itself yeah. uh, and then put up an even worse fight because the vast majority of success when it comes to offense is momentum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Once you move, continue to move, and then you'll never be able to s allow them to set in a defense of any kind. But Russia has to constantly slow down, let the supply line catch up, move again, and now they're every single time they move forward, they're running into a relatively decent defensive measure, mm -hmm. or even but, just a bunch of drones firing. Also true. Yeah. Also true. Yeah. Uh, well, I think yeah, it will be. This will help the Russian military in the long run, though. I think because now they'll have experience. You know, unlike us, we've been who's been fighting for like a generation with this stuff, getting the logistics kind of figured out of how to move stuff and get stuff to where it needs to go in a timely manner. The Russians haven't had this opportunity. I, I don't want to make it sound like an opportunity, but that's what it is. It's a, it's a way for the Russians to get their logistical and communication problems figured out before they, say, target another state military. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, before, before we start, I do want to... It's a diamond in the rough for them. So I do want to at least give the shout out to what I was talking about earlier about that YouTube video, YouTuber, uh, Task and Purpose, very good videos on supplementing military tactics, etc. And has made a lot of videos on Ukraine and Russia, like a Russian-Ukrainian war. I suggest looking it up for anyone who's listening right now. Than that. Well, does he do anything on the South Korean elections by chance? Um, I haven't heard anything yet. But even before we get to the oh, South Korean okay. elections, I wanted to get um, Wendell's, um, I guess, understandings on the Russian artillery strategies. Mm. Um, so is it just a... Um, kind of for I guess for Russian armed forces or at least their their ground forces to essentially maneuver or position themselves behind uh, not necessarily behind but essentially have the artillery uh, kind of initiate the operations essentially lay lay to the ground everything in front and then allow your armored divisions or etc to come in and seize whatever what's left is that the Russian um I, I'll I think. What you're saying is true, but I'll tell you how they taught us. Okay. <laughs> okay, so uh, the U.S. is organized to where artillery supports maneuver. Mm -hmm. So artillery cannons, rockets are supporting tanks and infantry in the front. Um, the Russians do the opposite, and that's why they have triple the artillery assets we do. Mm -hmm. So maneuver 
will position itself to protect artillery systems where in which the artillery systems will level something called a kill box or a kill zone mm -hmm. where they literally just level entire grid squares. Now, obviously, they can't do that simply because the public eye in Ukraine is so uh, focused, mm -hmm. so focused on the situation. But in a near peer, say with the United States, they would just destroy entire blocks of cities, just level it, just to make sure that the United States can't use it as cover, uh, mm -hmm. maintain guerrilla warfare tactics, those kind of things. You have to consider like the in-law, uh, the uh, the stinger, mm -hmm. um, the um, javelin. Those systems in a city are horrifying to an armor commander. And if you ever talk to any armor officer, they'll tell you in a heartbeat, city is the scariest thing you could ever do. Because you, like, it could be in any window, anywhere, and all that do is pop up for a couple seconds, and you just lost a vehicle and the whole crew with it. Well, I think the Russians learned that in Chechnya when they tried to invade Grozny. It's literally a Chechen in every corner in that city. It's almost like it's Chechnya. Who knows? I hear some Chechens are in Ukraine right now. If you're if you're a state military, don't go into Chechnya. That's not really. Did that make sense? No, no, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, that also makes sense as to why, for example, you look at their tactical warhead arsenal. It's literally like one like one U.S. tactical weapon is like eight Russian tactical weapons. So it's kind of like that. Utilizing as uh, I guess a tactical brute force operation essentially where you you're gonna lay waste to any and all things that are present and then by the time like the quote-unquote you know the, the coast is clear then that's when you can push your army divisions or your your squadrons ahead um, to ensure that's the primary it's called the BM 21 uh, grad mm -hmm. and that's just like a 40 I let you guys oh you mean too. the Katusha rockets essentially right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's just a really really fast-moving uh, artillery system. It takes a really long time to reload, uh, but the intent is it's supposed to hit an entire grid square. One truck, two trucks. Ten and how, trucks. how far away from the battlefield can they operate? Uh, so the engagement zone we're taught is between 16 and 40 kilometers. Okay. Uh, so the minimum range is actually important as well because they can get too close to the battlefield and not be able to engage. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's something called That's um, an indirect fire. Uh, there's basically a vertical approach and a horizontal approach. Uh, so if you get too close, even if you shoot straight up, you still can't hit close close enough to, to take out the enemy. So uh, I was part of a HIMARS unit in uh, Iraq, Turkey. And uh, the two times we missed our targets were because they were too close. Gotcha. Because the warhead couldn't in engage its targeting system soon enough to, uh -huh. to hit those guys. So that makes sense. Interesting. Now we can. Now we can. <laughs> well, I, this is something I haven't been following, but thank God Brian Revis has. He's been following the South Korean elections, and he's noted that uh, the election of South Korea's new president will have important ripple effects in, in the realm of foreign policy. And I just wanted him to kind of give a Wikipedia summary of what's happened before we dive deeper. I don't know if it'll be a Wikipedia summary. Well, go ahead. Do your best. So, well, first off, I'll admit, I haven't really been looking that much into the elections, but it kind of just appeared on my radar and I was like, we need to talk about this. So, basically what happened recently, for those who haven't known, is um, South Korea recently had an election in, uh, recently had an election yesterday. And um, the election brought in a new candidate known as Yoon Suk-yeol. I believe how you pronounce it. I'm not very good at Korean names. But basically, he is a part of the Conservative Party in... Um, he's part of the Conservative Party in South Korea. And the difference between liberal and conservative in Korea is generally... 
if you're like the liberal parties generally are more favorable towards trying to find peaceful settlements with North Korea as well as being a little bit less being a little bit less uh, hostile as for conservative they're more hostile towards North Korea as well as they are more they're more willing to cooperate with the United States on certain issues etc etc and the interesting thing with this is the interesting with this president is or president elect is that he is the first conservative president to be elected in five years. Um, he has already shown that he is very interested in show, showing a harsh stance against North Korea, especially because of um, recent because of recent uh, missile tests, including what we just recently discovered was a recent ICBM test that happened earlier today. And he is also advocated for to promote to promote more cooperation with. Um, with the United States and even Japan is a little bit excited because they're thinking they can uh, they can settle some of their issues with uh, North with uh, South Korea at the moment. So if that's the case, uh, two things: uh, what do you think uh, a conservative government means? Do they do they become more withdrawn or do they become more aggressive? I think they're going to be more aggressive. If you saw the last president who was conservative president in South Korea, uh, Park. I'm trying to remember the exact name. It's like Park Boom. Jung. Hmm? No, no, not no, Moon. No, Muslim. conservative. Oh, conservative. Uh, the last conservative pre- president, uh, she was very, she was very much against North Korea, and I pre- and I remember she did a bunch of policies that were against North Korea. I think one of them involved even getting rid, dis- um, to dismantle or to end a cooperation agreement with North Korea on a textile factory or some factory on the border. Was that when that happened? You were. Yeah. Oh boy! <laughs> what is she kicked out of office? She was. Yeah, she, she was. That's the funny thing. She was um, impeached, I believe, because there was some. There was news that she was giving political favors to uh, a fr- to someone she knew who was considered an advisor, and she was basically u- giving her family that person's family's favors, and that caused a lot of problems. And that's one of the reasons why the <laughs> most recent president, uh, President Moon, was elected. Because it was believed that he would not do this, and we discover later in 2019 he did the same exact thing. So, are you trying to tell me politicians are corrupt? What? Uh, I, I, well, I'm just telling you what I see on paper. <laughs> well, that might be why they elected you. I mean, he spent the last 27 years of his life as a prosecutor, not necessarily involved directly in policy making or. Policy. And he was a specific prosecutor that did help to prosecute the President Park. There you go. Oh, that's just really. St- What's even more hilarious is that he's basically he's running with the same political groups as what Park ran for before she was ousted, which makes it even. But she's ousted for corruption. You can have the same political beliefs. That is that is true. But Uh, question on my second piece: Uh, Will the Quad now become the Quinn? We're, that's an interesting <laughs> thing because we've noticed. Um, so we have noted there have been some signs that South Korea, even with Moon's administration, the previous the president who's going to be leaving office soon, there's been some signs that they have wanted to join the Quad, and um, they and even this most recent president elect, he is saying that he wants to join the Quad and he wants to have more cooperation with them, especially interesting. With the quad United just States. to just to confirm: U.S., Japan. India, Australia. Yeah, yes. yes. quadrilateral security. But yeah, and it's interesting yes. too because with his policies to go against North Korea and stuff, he's advocated for the for the purchase of THAAD missile systems, and China has been very vocal on that subject as well. Well, well in, in general, really powerful system. Well, in, in general, he's been 
the new uh, president, he's been advocating a stronger South Korean military. And, and Wendell, I, I know you've kind of liaison right, with some South Korean military units. Could you explain the state of their, uh, the South Korean military right now, and what, what modernization efforts they're doing? Uh, absolutely fantastic. So their artillery pieces, so I was on a part of a Paladin, which is a self-propelled um, unit, if you will. Looks they, like a tank a little bit. It looks like a tank, yeah, but it's fat, yeah, and yeah. if you call it a tank to anyone who's Double, artillery, yeah. <laughs> But um, uh, so they have something called the is the K nine I believe, which okay. is their yeah. um, it's a similar system, but super advanced. Uh, I would say it, it's a comparable, if not, it might be a little bit better than the Paladin. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had one battalion uh, in in Korea. They had eighteen on the line on, on the BMC. Uh, so to say their military artillery wise is is quite effective. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, they have a 98% conscription rate for their males. Oh, yeah. So like the, even... pro the problem they have there is the fact that they have to conscript basically everyone now. Oh, so it's... if you're a little weak or a little slow in the head, they're still going to take you. So you're seeing a quality of drop in Korean soldiers on the basic level mm -hmm. uh, because they're maintaining that high level of readiness. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think the military was about 1.4 million when I was there, and I think the intent is to maintain 1.4 million forever. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, all Korean males serve, it's like 22 months uh, before they're released from their duty for the country. And so that means that their entire country of 50 million can uh, basically mobilize uh, up to 24 million people to be effective combat ready. So it's quite quite impressive well, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing that's interesting actually with that is um, there's I've been actually seeing some recent reports that the um, South Korean population, like I think it was last year actually that for the first time ever we saw a South Korean population decline. It's having a similar situation that uh, you Japan, Japan China, uh, Taiwan, they're all having yeah. the same issue. Yeah, so I'm wondering how that's really going to affect. Uh, that's something that they actually discussed. It's a problem. They don't know how to solve it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I'm like, that they ha they'll, they'll be good for the next 20 or 30 years, but there's going to come a point where it's like, hey, we need to put in some programs to have some children because yeah. zero children mm -hmm. is bad. That's uh, That reminds me of, apparently like in 2050, um, China is supposed to have less than a billion people. Um, and I'd really be surprised if that happens, but I know Japan's losing like 30 million people. Yeah. It's going from like 125 to less than 100 million right. in the next 20 years. And then Nigeria is supposed Just based to be... based on age. And then Nigeria is supposed to become the third largest population in the world by 2050. Nigeria? Then, yeah. Wow. And then by 2100, 50% of global births come from Africa. Oh, that, doesn't um, make that makes sense to me. The, the average, not the spirit, not the goal, but like on populations-wide, but it's just interesting how... We see these these population trends, and we know, like for example, um, a lot of these East Asian nations, such as China, for example, where population numbers is everything is part of their propaganda tool. You know, we're the you know the largest population in the world. What happens then now if let's say for example India, which most likely they will will surpass China next year. Yeah, will surpass China's population. What does that then do to the political psyche of the Chinese, and will they have any type of implications for their behaviors? Just change policy from two to three. 
<laughs> and then three back to one. Well, <laughs> I mean, we'll see. Maybe technological advancements will be able to kind of mitigate this demographic collapse. Well, that's I mean, one. That's one thing China's looking into biotechnology. They're looking into ways to not only overcome. Can you tell me they're gonna, the Sith Lords are going to be the Balloon Army? Oh my God! Reality from CCP. Man. <laughs> Darth Vader was chic. Xi Jinping, Darth Vader. Literally, that's how it's beautiful. Or Emperor Palpatine. That would make a little bit more sense to be honest. I can see, I can see how I like to call him. I like to see Winnie the She with a black cloak and just being good, Anakin, good. We really get down the nerd rabbit hole. We really did. I listened from. When you have Brian Rebus on a podcast, it's gonna get nerdy. Going on. But also, another thing that has to be taken into consideration when you look at at least Korean nationalism, Korean nationalism is not no is not really pro, let's say, Japanese because of oh, absolutely the, not. Oh, yeah. context, oh, which raises absolutely the not. question of, okay, well, yeah, the immediate South Korean dilemma is North Korea, especially after today. But let's say we remove that value out of the question. Would Japan actually really be Let's say, yeah. would they tolerate or would they be accepting yes. of a a, nas- a Korean nationalistic fervor knowing that one of the foundations of Korean nationalism is not pro-Japanese, is actually more lenient towards well, China? that's the thing. So, if we're looking, well, if we're looking at it at the Korean nationalistic sense, I don't think it would go well for Japan because I think it would go far worse than what it already has. As for if we're talking about what's going on now, so far the Japanese have shown very much interest in the mm. new president in the new president elect in Korea because um, they think because of his stance on with stronger ties of, with the U.S. They're thinking, oh, that means like you definitely want to want to participate in security ties, right. creating further security ties and all of that, right. and we can put everything involving uh, some of our past war crimes that behind us, just like in. Basically, they're they're kind of hopeful. I'm not sure if it'll go well, which would be yeah. They're very hopeful. I think at least the Japanese government is, but I don't think it would go that well, especially because there are Jap- like the Korean population is still angry if, with Japan for what they did during the colonization period, and even now, like um, there's the two, I think it was 2018 where there was a court case which said that. The Korea wants uh, Japanese companies to pay to pay for the comfort women during World War. Like it was a um, oh yeah, it was like a it was a settlement thing. Still and I it's I'm pretty sure it's still heavily prevalent in Korea in Korea right now. Other way around. Hmm? Other way around. Other way around. There's a massive Korean population in Japan, yeah, Japan. and the Japanese don't accept them. No, I'm not actually that surprised to be honest. There's about two hundred thousand of them. Um. So, uh, if you guys aren't aware, during the Japanese occupation, they took the most beautiful South mm-hmm. Korean women and, and moved them to Japan. But I'm actually going to disagree with you on that one. The reason I am is because there are 55,000 American soldiers in Japan and 20,000 in Korea. And Japan and Korea both like money, and the United States provides them that option. Uh, so, if they hate each other or cause friction between each other, they'll cause friction inside the United States. Uh, and that's something that they're just not well no the thing I think is well to be more clear I do expect for them to cooperate especially because Japan right now is very much has a lot more concerns with China as well as especially with North Korea because all I'm saying I'm saying remove those Mm -hmm. I think Japan and Korea still they might hate each other but it's kind of like 
I want the neighbor to like me, which is mm-hmm. the United mm-hmm. States in this analogy. Uh-huh. So both Japan and Korea will Quite superficially be like, we won't kill each other. No. Because that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, that makes I, more sense. You know, I, I really doubt that South Korea is going to join the quad. I don't know what the... the I agree. Uh, I don't know what the joining requirements are for new countries, but I mean, I, I do think... I know that the, the Quad, they're trying to integrate their logistics, yep. their economic policies, their diplomatic um, um, It'd be, it'd be very stuff. similar to the Shanghai organization. Yeah. Um, so it's superficial more than anything, but it's a, like a political statement yeah. that Korea is now a part of yeah. the Quad. And, <laughs> but an but, but, but important part of the Quad is they're trying, or at least the United States, one of the policies they've been trying to do is they've been trying to increase weapons interoperability. That's that's a big thing that's been trying to do, was particularly with Australia, and then um, doing logistics deals with India to kind of streamline that mm-hmm. for for naval bases and whatnot. So it, it'll just be interesting to see, like, if South Korea were to kind of do that, like, how integrated would their national security strategies become with Japan, just by you know the the fact that they're integrating, they're both integrating with the United States. So it's under- in two thousand, uh, President Bush almost immediately when he came into office, uh, obviously this is immediately following September eleventh. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States had about eighty thousand soldiers stationed in Korea, but after nine eleven, obviously a lot of those soldiers were redeployed from Korea into Afghanistan. Um, and so, cold to hot. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so what happened was, is President Bush wanted to change the dynamic of the security agreement between South Korea and the United States. Mm-hmm. And so what happened there was, the United States, for the last 22 years, has been trying to hand off the uh, strategic battle plan to Korean leaders, and they won't take it. They mm-hmm. want U.S. leadership there, because it means we're permanently connected with them at all mm-hmm. times, so we provide that deterrence element. Uh, but also simultaneously, it's a little scary, you know. I, I, if I were a Korean and I was by myself against both China and North Korea, I'd kind of want the U.S. You know, Big Brother just sitting behind me, just helping me, making sure that, that I that I feel a little bit more secure in my position. So but, that that would explain the presence of of the bad missile systems yeah. in South Korea, I suppose, mm-hmm. right? You know, yes. What like the United States pays for seventy percent of. Uh, not anymore. Not uh, anymore. So Korea has constantly increased its purchase, not purchasing, but its payment to the United States, mm-hmm. and the intent, I, I don't know how far in the future, is for Korea to, yeah, okay. uh, the intent is for Korea to pay for American president's presence for 100%. Pay the president to. Okay. <laughs> that sounds right. Speaking That's of a- which, I would like to know if we have just officially surpassed 5,000 downloads. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where are they from? Is the Philippines Oh, that's from? Uh, it, Every Phil- time the Philippines always the show Philippines strong. come in for downloads, it's like thirty. <laughs> There's never one. I don't know if they're getting off work at this time. I don't know what. I don't know on, what it is, but yeah. every it's at least minimally twenty five. Max was like sixty. You love the sultry sound of your voice. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> You're like ooh, this <laughs> Greek guy. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Wow. <laughs> this that's pretty awesome, man. I'm I'm impressed. Seriously, I'm impressed too. Like, we the first on, I think actually no podcast two or th- no three. So like when we asked when the war actually started, mm-hmm. it has been downloaded over 540 times. And I'm like, excuse me, 
Hey, There's something we hear about war. <laughs> this yeah. is also true. We, humans well, for, are weird, man. Well, yeah. We don't like war, but I kind of want to see it. You like it? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's kind of entertaining. You have to consider, no, like, uh, a lot of people like video games and TV, and you know, a lot of people watching the Ukraine war, I'm like, it's more entertainment than they actually care about what's going on. And that's yes. Americans, Europeans, that's everyone. Unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, so they, they see, they, it's almost like a video game on TV. It's like, oh, yeah. look, they're the tech of the city. Yeah, what go. would I do? <laughs> <laughs> what would I do in that situation? Well, looking at, uh, going back to the Korea thing, um, that he did say. Who was he? The new South oh, Korean president. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yes, they will be taking a much more aggressive stance, but he will leave that door open for negotiation. But the problem is that a lot of that I see that he's going to endure, the liberals still have a good hold on South Korean legislature. Mm-hmm. And a lot, at least for now, we don't know if this is an indication of, yeah. I'm just curious. When we say liberal and conservative. Liberal, so that's a good thing. We kind of talked about this earlier. So for from what I can see, it really comes down to how to approach the North Korean Okay. Problem. Like whether diplomatic or uh, diplomatically or K two Black Panther. Is that like the primary like, <laughs> is, that, is that the primary political is that the primary political point to get elected or is there like a That's secondary? one and then another one another one is corruption, I believe. One. So one corruption, North Korea, the the notions of nuclear weapons because there was a point in time where South Korea did try to pursue nuclear weapons um, as well as you know, the relations with Japan and the United States and the one thing I know with this election was one of the things that was addressed was uh, rising prices for housing yeah. and stuff and like job availability for uh, people getting out of university higher education I right. remember those were other problems. Well, and, and we got to remember too, President Yoon, he was elected, what, the slimmest margin in South Korea? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 40 so he does, not, he does not have a clear mandate no, to rule. He can make minor changes uh, reasonably to, you know, to South Korea's national security policy, but to make anything drastic, he's going to need a, a lot more consensus than what he's mm-hmm. got right now. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So we'll just have to see what happens. And do you think, now, let's say if he were to request fads to remain or more to be implemented do you think biden knowing biden's i don't even know foreign policy um would that be something that the biden administration would grant and could you explain that missile systems like uh, the layman right yeah uh so that missile system is basically a anti-icbm system so it can it can shoot down aircraft but it's designed to shoot down uh icbms in their second stage uh, so ICBMs, I think, if I'm not mistaken, have three stages. Uh, so the second stage is basically as it's entering the atmosphere or exiting the atmosphere, uh, and then uh, the third stage is where it uses gravity to fall back on its target. Mm-hmm. So there's no actual legitimate thrust when the MERV activates and deploys its warheads; uh, they just fall to the earth. Um, so the THAAD is supposed to hit it in its second stage, so the MERV never deploys any of its warheads, and that's what makes an effective system. So to use the THAAD against the aircraft is kind of an overkill. Yeah. That's what you use the Prey Patriot system for. Uh, but that's, it's a kinetic strike, too, so there's a, uh, it's supposed to physically hit the mm-hmm. other warhead. Um, so that's a THAAD. Uh, and to answer your question, um, if I, my, my personal ass- assessment would be uh, deploying another that system would be un- unnecessary at this time, mm-hmm. uh, but if we had to, like that option came up, uh, yeah, I think President Biden would be up for it. Uh, the only person that would uh, irritate though is China, because 
having one is effective to shoot down one ICBM. Right. Well, well, what would the problem be if, if the Biden administration, say, put it that in, I don't know, in Oregon, right? It could still conceivably hit these ICBMs. No. Of, no? No? Okay. No. Uh, so you have to consider that when the MIRV deploys its warheads, they're floating. Mm-hmm. And so the Earth turns and then they fall back. So that's why a warhead deployment actually takes 45 minutes. It has nothing to do with the missile actually flying over and then deploying. It flies up, deploys the warheads, Earth rotates, and then they fall back to Earth. Makes sense. So we, every time you see those movies where you see a bunch of missiles crisscrossing, uh-huh. that's not what you're going to see. Actually, you're not going to see anything at all. So uh, So you're saying that has to be reasonably close to the yes, launch yes, target of ICBM to be it effective. Does. Absolutely. Okay. Which makes sense as to why, I guess... In the sense of North Korea, they're for their, the building of new ICBM bases. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming the reason why they want to push it, build them more closer to China, so that maybe perhaps it couldn't be intercepted in its second stage. Or uh, well, and the other thing too, why not Alaska? Would it be would it be conceivable to build one in Alaska? No. Okay. So the that would have to be pretty close to where the the, uh, the ICBM is launched. Okay. So Alaska, California, those the Hawaii wouldn't it'd be pointless at that point. Now okay. there is a bad system that goes on board naval ships that is capable of doing what you're describing. Okay. So they can kind of deploy them as like a, not a shield of sorts, but a a Uh countermeasure. I I think they're called a missile frigate or a missile cruiser. I can't remember exactly what the the actual name of the ship is, but it does exactly what the THAAD does, and it it can actually uh, target them in the third stage. Okay. Interesting. Okay. We learn something new every day. I know. That's why. That's why I tune into this podcast. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. I gotta oh, BS man. me, Wayne. Right. Um, but I mean, moving right along with we're talking about Korea, we can kind of now talk about the the other part of the quad, the India U.S. alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for a few, I think it was a few days ago, where Biden tried to announce sanctions onto India oh, because yeah. of you didn't hear about that I totally missed that <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. you would, that you would be so annoyed yeah, yeah so when he like said very, that very he was going idea. to put sanctions on India for their historical military relationship with Russia he said because they were not willing to essentially go they were not essentially going to do a UN um, condemnation of the invasion of Ukraine Biden took that as, oh, well, then indirectly do the transit of property because you abstained. That means that you must indirectly agree with Russia's operation. Uh, two things. That's not how you make friends. <laughs> uh, and then second thing is, I mean, like, India doesn't want to lose the lease of, like, what is it, 40 different submarines? Right. So I'm like, well, India has to play the middle ground. They have to. And they, and they have been becoming closer to us. I mean, yeah, for instance. Right. Now like, it's <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so in, June, in June of 2020, Australia and the United States signed separate, albeit right. separate, uh, logistics agreements with India for right. basing and for other interoperability issues. Right. Um, and you guys are right. I mean, India does have to also play the field and be... Mm-hmm. reasonably neutral when it comes to Russia because they, around in 2020, they signed a deal to acquire about 70,000 new AK-style Rus- uh, rifles and the AK-102s. And they also acquired contracts to manufacture about 660,000 AK-103s in-house. Uh-huh. And so these, so these rifles will replace um, the, the uh, battle rifles that India has now. Are we sure that they're 103s? 
<laughs> well, I mean, officially, I mean, Brian Reeves and I, we had this conversation before the podcast started. He thought they were AK-202s uh, and 203s. I say they were 103s, and that's just, this is a semantics issue. They're the same and weapon, just different names. Literally, but, we, looked at, we looked it up online, so the official designation is 203s, but they're basically 103s just made in India. But yeah, but I mean, that's a massive deal for Russia and, and India as well, because India gets... The weapon systems that it's kind of familiar with, and then Russia gets, well, I mean, a new source of revenue. I mean, arms deals are one yep. of the ways they make a lot of money in addition to the, the energy deals that they've had. Well, if you so, mind, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. Mind if I just say, first off, for the uh, for abstaining, honestly, that for the who's vote, abstaining? For India, India abstaining in the uh, in the UN vote on condemning Russia, mm-hmm. honestly, that's the closest thing you're gonna get for anyone who has ties with both countries to say I don't agree with what Russia is doing. So I don't know why we have to be like, oh, you're abstaining. That means you support them. So we're gonna put so you're gonna put sanctions on you. Like, yeah, no, yeah. I find that stupid, especially because with India. Like, India is a very important country for us to have an ally with at the moment, especially as China is starting to rise in its military and its economy. And if we just try if we just try to essentially put sanctions on India, that's going to ruin a lot of the U.S. strategy for dealing oh, with China. Absolutely. You know, I'm talking about we can't get mad for a historical relationship that Russia, that India yeah. had with Russia. But that's, that goes back since their, ter- their times of independence. Well, that's the thing. Like, Russia and, yeah, like you just said, Russia and India have had huge relationships since the, since the beginning of India's independence. For a long time. Even yeah, during... only Russia. Yeah. It's, to, <laughs> it's yeah, to the true. point that, honestly, I remember this story a very long time ago when the um, Indo... During the... When the Indo-Pakistani wars were more frequent than ever, um, it was it was usually the U.S. would support Pakistan, so you pack of in with mm-hmm. side of India. And I remember at one point there were U.S. there was a U.S. carrier group that was going around that was going around Bangladesh during the Bangladeshi um, War of Independence against Pakistan, and it was it went there. I don't know the exact mission. Some people say. Some people, specifically the Russian side, says, oh, they were there because they're thinking about intervening. And the Soviets, they were willing to literally send in submarines and say, hey, back off here for a few seconds. <laughs> but it makes sense, though, why, I mean, India remained, attempted to remain true to its non-alignment uh, during the Cold War. And that, at that time, I mean, the Soviet Union, if you look at some of the early on Indian politics, like economic policies, oh, it, yeah. it was oriented towards well, that of the Soviet Union. Well, yeah, that's Union. the thing of India politics. Sorry, uh, that, that socialism or communism system. It was, it was kind of like... It was like... They try to combine capitalism and communism, They but, had social engineering, so that was kind of what endeared them. I right, so a lot of the early on politics, I mean, at that time, India was heavily, to me, to this point, very agrarian. Um, at that time, I mean, if we thought about heavy industries, you would think, especially in the Eurasian plane or plate, it would be the Soviet Union if you really needed assistance in, in the heavy industry, heavy machinery, um, industrial, um, literally industrialization and five-year plans. So India did try to practice his notions of five-year plans. Um, it, in some some cases, it did kind of work, but because of their socialist policies, that's why it wasn't until the 90s that India was able to remove a lot of those red, that red tape so then that would spearhead their economic growth. But because of their early on economic priorities um, and then the wars with, Pac- with Pakistan, 
which, by the way, their field marshal Manic Shaw. This is a tan. This is just a little tangent. Um, according to Manic Shaw, the reason why India did not occupy Pakistan when they were outside Islamabad is because field marshal Manik Shaw felt that it wouldn't be the Hindu thing to do. Um, to seize and reincorporate Pakistan. So once he literally had it in his hands and was like, no. I think, uh, uh, what, what year was this? So the first, this was the first um, Indo-Pakistan. So 1971. Are we talking one? about the first one? No, no, this wasn't the first one. This was 71, I'm sorry. Okay, so that was the third one. So this was the third one. Um, so 1971. Unfortunately, I had some imperialist tendency, so I would have just I would have just said do it. <laughs> but he was like, no, that's not the thing to do, um, because that one was sparked by the Bangladeshi Liberation War. But yeah, you were saying. You uh, I would say I'm gonna say Pakistan having nukes probably dissuaded him. <laughs> well, they didn't have nukes. <laughs> they didn't have nukes in the 70s because they only like if you look at the casualty reports from all three wars, there's almost no bloodshed. So if you like, take a look at any one of the three, and they're tiny wars. Well, well, that's a thing, well this like, could also have been a thing. Like, we got to think: Would India really want to really go to war with Pakistan? Because we got to remember, India at that stage had only been a country for what a couple decades. Like so it, before 47. that, yeah. I mean, you. I mean, obtained they, nukes in 1971. And so the that pa- that would be the Pakistanis. That would be a thing, but we got to also remember: Why would India want to to go to full scale war with Pakistan? Right? Mm-hmm. They they want Pakistan as a boogeyman to unite all these different nationalities, ethnicities, and language groups within India behind yeah. that boogeyman. So, that makes sense. So we got to think like that. Like that makes sense. Uh, they wouldn't. But then also, you also got to remember though that the creation of Pakistan wasn't intentional. Um, what sparked it. It was weird though because the actual founder of Pakistan, like, um, he was not really that much of a devout Muslim. Hmm. Um, he's alcoholic. Is that Jim? Uh, <laughs> no, 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 he was. I, he was, I, I was gonna make a joke and say, like, so uh, you're talking about the King of Britain? Well, <laughs> even in that memo, even in that notion, there was no intention to split up the British Raj at all. There was the notion of wanting to keep it united as much as possible to then be a major ally to England. The problem is, is that when. Gan, well not Gawi, Jawaharlal Nehru, Nehru took over his boat. His notions of Hindu-based nationalism, um, and it was safer to split them. Ash, well, no, that was after they started to implement policies to discriminate against Indian Muslims. Hmm. So, to the notions, all all Indian Muslims wanted to do was two things: more representation in the Indian government, and then the ability to create Islamic communes, so where they they can essentially help govern themselves through the interpretation of Sharia law. Hmm. Those are the two main things that they wanted. New rules, like eh, no, um, this is a Hindu-based nation. This is either adhere to these laws, or sorry, that led to protests, that led to bloodshed, and then that led to Pakistan becoming Pakistan, Bangladesh. Like, are right, they leaving? We leaving? And then Pakistan was like, oh, but we can't really support you because like, you on the other side of Bangladesh, or you on the other side of India, um, and then the set the. Bangladesh Liberation War occurred, and then bang. Um, but that was a crash course in why there's Indian Pakistan. I don't mean to spin this back, but yeah, I want to do a correction. So oh, I looked this up. So I was in Korea from 2013 to 2015. Okay. I told the army was 1.4 million. That's where I'm getting my number from. I just looked it up. It's between either 550,000 to 680,000. 
So I don't know how actually big that is, but I just want to make that correction. I'm getting my information from Google. <laughs> uh, uh, that number could be wrong as well. That makes uh, sense, but uh, I think it's like 2.7 million reservists is also for a South thing. Korea. Yeah, so that makes sense. Um, you might be counting that. But you also have to consider that every male knows how to right. Fly. Just right. like Switzerland. Oh, it's literally Switzerland, right? Or well, the major, the AGR, the active guards, who knows, right? But it makes sense, but, though. Uh, Why? But uh, they're mm-hmm. the, the life of Koreans, uh, <laughs> uh, soldiers, it, you, feel, you feel bad for them. Uh, they do not live a very uh, pleasant life as a soldier for South Korea. Oh, I don't even know what so now here's <laughs> I don't mean to spin it back to Korea. So you no, you're right fine, but no, that kind of includes <laughs> us, though, because now it kind of ties this in. We talked about Korea and the Quad and Russia and India. How... <laughs> Does then this quad, how is this impacted by now Russia, United States tensions, Russia invading Ukraine? Um, what could this be? For example, we kind of said later or earlier that you don't see Korea joining um, mm-hmm. the quad to make it the Quinn. Mm-hmm. But. It doesn't have the same ring to it, right? Yeah, it doesn't really. It's, no, it just doesn't say. We call Quinn. The Quinn. Well, they, Quinn. Said, they said the quad plus. That's what I remember here. Oh, yeah, okay. But also, it's this notion of okay, well, let's say, for example, we had this discussion. Well, North Korea launches their ICBMs, especially that was going on in Ukraine. Um, we see the notions of you know, we said this last no, two weeks ago when Abe talked about what Japan should get nuclear weapons. Um, that's the first time in 80 years? Yeah, like a long ass time. <laughs> I already know like, how that works. When, when Wainwright said that, I was like, excuse me? Like, they, but they have to... Oh, God, but they have the capacity... <laughs> I dropped my headphones. Yeah. But they have the capacity to do it if they want to... If, they, if, they, if that's something that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Looking at the actions and the... Kind of the... How the Chinese are maneuvering themselves through Central Asia um, now that Russia is particularly too preoccupied and bogged down um, while he's using Russia. I would say we're quad. And we're back. All right, there we go. Now, Wendell, um, I dropped my damn headphone. and forgot what I was talking about. So, go ahead. Excellent. Uh, so, to your point about, like, where the quad is uh, in the actions of Ukraine, uh, because I wasn't really spun up on what President Biden did <laughs> in India, I would have thought that the Quad would have probably been strengthened in right. response to Russia. But now that President Biden's threatened some sort of sanction against India, uh, I'm, I'm not so sure anymore. So that he did remove it. He did like that day. Even the attempt, even the idea, right. even speaking out there. is dangerous. It's so. out there. Um, it's it's still recoverable though. Like no matter what. The U.S. government threatens the U.S. government threatens everybody every day. Like it's it's not yeah. it's it's something they we can threaten run. them with hugs. Yes, yes. we threaten them. <laughs> but, but it's nothing. It's nothing the Biden administration can't walk back, especially oh, with Chinese military, diplomatic, and economic expansion in the region. I mean, we all know about the deals with Bangladesh, uh-huh. with Pakistan. I mean, they're encircling India, and that gives, pearls. and that gives Indians reason to be nervous and look for allies with Australia. Japan mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna lie, probably when that entire like thing was happening, you're saying, We're thinking about putting sanctions on India. I'm just imagining just like some guy pops up and goes, Wait, wait, we can't we shouldn't do that? Oh, never mind, we're shaking. I don't understand why like 
First of all, India joining the quad was as much of a shock it's to a, a huge, lot of people. Huge move. What? It's like India, mm-hmm. the ally of Russia, is no longer acting like an ally of Russia. Right. They're okay. Because I think the I think the Indian estimation was like at the time. Well, are Russia and China going to be even remotely allied in the future? Are they going to drift further apart? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the Indian policymakers they made that decision. Well, like okay, the Russians and the Chinese are not going to be that closely entwined. They're going to pursue their own separate things. Right. Russia's going to look more to Europe. And China's going to look more towards Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. well, yeah. us. And we got to counter that somehow. And, and I think that's what, why they decided to join the Quad and maintain their acquisition uh, forums and programs with, with Russia. But you see also, what's interesting enough, what a lot of people don't, aren't talking about is that not only is India part of the Quad, but they're also part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Mm-hmm. Quite a few things, um, but they're all, but they're not part. They're of in almost every alliance there is. Well, they're, not, they're not part of a couple big trade deal. They're not part of RCEP, regional, no. and they're not part of the new Trans-Pacific Partnership. Things they they set up and they decided not to join. Same as United States. So Which they're they're sense. not necessarily in all these uh, trade agreements and, and, and policy arrangements that um, we would think. And that's what we got to we got to keep in mind. They're not as entwined with China as. Or Russia, as, as we should. No, absolutely. I think uh, India, as a whole, believes China is an existential threat. Yeah, that's right. And that goes back for thousands of years. And the only thing they haven't gone to war is because there's a massive mountain range in between their two yeah. countries. But they, they've tried. But I mean, they, they tried multiple times. <laughs> okay, those kind of engagements were 60 people engaged 40 yeah. people. That's not a, that's <laughs> not a not. But there was, there was one time, there was, it was very, very, 2020, I believe, I mean, 10,000 Chinese troops, they mysteriously ended up on the Indian side of the border, up in, uh, in the Kashmir kind of area, in the northern part of India. So like, the so, Chinese said 200, the Indians said 10,000. You cut 20. the difference, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta 20 people uh, die. No, you, see, but I'm, you see what I'm saying? But I mean, imagine like, okay. They had a fight club that day. It, it, it's weird, but like, imagine, say, a state military encroaches on U.S. territory, right? They, they mm-hmm. come into New Mexico. I mean, I don't know, maybe Mainers, state of Mainers might not think it's a big deal, but like, most people would. You see what I'm saying? Canadians. Yeah, I know, but, <laughs> but, here's the thing. but it's a big deal. It's something, it's something a lot of Indians, I'm sure, are looking at me like, wow, you shouldn't be here, you need to get out. China's a boogeyman. We need to deal with them some way. And I mean, like I said, their competition goes back thousands of years. I know, for example, in the 1600s, so we're going back to when India was the Mughal Empire. Mm. Uh, there was a point in time where India, for a couple of decades, had the largest economy in the world, larger mm. than China. That doesn't make no, that makes complete sense right. to me. But <laughs> links was that were they linked to Britain yet? Um, no, 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 no. Wait, sixteen. But they had they had trade yeah. deals with South um, Southeast Asia, clove spices, that type of mm-hmm. stuff. Because the sixteen hundreds. No, that was during that was during the time when Europeans were yeah, starting to trade more of India too, and right. the Mughal Empire was considered. I don't want to say the richest empire. Well, at the time, that peacock well, like, throne was no joke. I'm no, trying to think because they were no like during the times of when like the Europeans were starting to go into. Going into India during the 1500s, 1600s, like that was when a lot of money was flowing through the Indian Ocean. Well, even bef- before England could get the the southern parts of India, it took them three times. It took them three tries. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, for those that are um, that love military innovations, the notions of missiles actually came from southern India. Mm-hmm. We uti- the South South Indians when the British were invading, they essentially had 
these um, kind of just like a garage truck, essentially. Well, not a truck, but like the canisters of which they shoot the, the missiles from. Um, there was a particular missile launch system that South, South Indians used where essentially it's like a firecracker. Um, but instead of like a, a kaboom, it had like blades and shit at the end. And so they would just launch it, aim it, shoot it. The British saw this was like, oh my God. Once they took over um, parts of southern India, they took this technology, took it back to London, but just added on to it. That eventually led to like canister shots, big, larger cannons. It's um, eventually that led to missile propellants, ballistic missiles. Like so, that's where it came from. So thanks, India. You never know. You never know what you're getting at the George Cannon. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting with India too. It's just like um, what people don't. I don't like people when they look, if they look at history and they may think, oh, India wasn't able to stop a bunch of islands. Well, the thing that people don't mention is the fact that when India, when Britain was able to invade India, they India was taking advantage of. I think it was a downfall of the Mughal Empire, if I'm correct. They were sort of the fraction. Um, yeah. Yeah, they were called Mysorean rockets. I was actually about to say something to that effect. So there is actually a difference between a rocket and a missile. Yes. So a rocket is unguided. Yes. While a missile is guided. Is guided. Yes. So it started off obviously unguided. Um, and I think the Nazi Germany actually has the first technical missile. Yeah. V two. Right. V one actually. V one. V one. But the notions, or at least the concepts for. Rocket. Rocket. So you wouldn't consider China inventing the rockets with their fireworks? I mean, I guess. Um, I mean, they were definitely one of, they were like the pioneer for, but I think as far as introduction to the Western world um, and utilizing it against Western-based military, like armies, and even would, the Navy, it would be, it will be India. Um, hmm. I did not know that. Britain got the idea of the rocket from the Mysores when they fought them three times. They lost the first twice, what well, the first two times. And then third time, they like, know we're going in. And then they took over the Mysores, um, which by the way, during that time, they were rivaling with the Mughals. Um, and there was another, the Maratha Confederation. Um, the Mysores was Southern India, but they were the ones with the rockets. India took it over and that was their way to get into, or the British took it over and that was the way to get into India took that technology for rockets, took it to London, and then basically at that time the Industrial Revolution was going on. So they was like, bam. The uh, initial rocket systems that were used back in, in those days weren't actually lethal. Or they were lethal, but not effectively yeah, lethal. Yeah, they weren't effective. Uh, heck, they weren't really effective during the um, the uh, American Revolution. Or yeah. the War of 1812. Uh, it, was, it was designed basically to be loud and scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it makes it, it's an interesting thing that you said there were three, three wars or three engagements. Three. I bet you the first two they're freaked out. They're like, they're what like, is that? <laughs> okay, well, I know what this is now, and they just went. Well, the earth earth this is what it looked like. Oh, what? That kind of reminds me of that Mulan rocket. Right. <laughs> so you, you never know where you're going to get the George Kennedy Group podcast. We're talking about Mulan rockets. We're not even talking about your problem. We're just talking about history. They oh, make the, uh, the head of it like a little dragon, mm-hmm. and then you got Mulan, you know? Well, I mean, if, if we, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and wheel us back on the, on the something we're talking about. Mulan. I'm gonna call it Mulan. That right? is a fantastic oh movie. I'm not, I'm not arguing. It's not. You can, but the cartoon, not the live action. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I'm not the cartoon. 
let's never talk. I was about lost that, with the live back, so we don't discuss that. But okay. but com- completely flipping from India and Mysore rockets and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I wanted to talk a little bit about Venezuela because there's been interesting stuff going on. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to reinvent our energy policy towards Venezuela, and I think uh, the Biden administration they sent down a couple of state officials about two weeks ago. And I don't know this for certain, but I believe those officials are trying to renegotiate energy deals and lift economic sanctions with Venezuela in order to kind of find uh, an alternate energy source to like 8% of, of, of U.S. oil. That I believe it was actually imports. confirmed. There was an article I actually did see which said that it was confirmed that they were talking about that originally. Well, there you go. And, and we just and there's been uh, pressure, I believe, within Congress yeah. to kind of lift these sanctions officially um, so we're just this is this is something that's very interesting to me and I'm, I'm kind of surprised that we are shifting our energy policy around to accommodate Venezuela instead of Russia when but that's well, weird though we should we should be focusing on ourselves and trying to boost domestic so I think production. that stems from the Nixon policy for foreign connection so creating interdependence and uh, global globalized economies prevents warfare so it, it might be idealistic in nature, but the intent is understandable. It may not make sense to someone who's seen like hist- historical precedents where Venezuela or Iran has violated those agreements, but the intent is to keep trying over and over again, and hopefully one day they'll do it. Uh, but you know, what's the, interesting, though... Understanding the, the nature of man is little, <laughs> sometimes is evil, and uh, I think uh, specifically Western society naturally believes humanity is good, Mm-hmm. Uh, while a lot of humanity is, in fact, not so good. Demons, bones. Oh but, I mean, just these past... I'm going to just read some of these headlines for a lot of these newscasts for at least the past two days. Five hours ago, Venezuelan Vice President meets good friend Lavrov of Russia um, to review their country's strategic obligations and relationships. An hour ago, White House says that there's no talks about lifting Venezuela oil sanctions. So, while we were, you know, here... Huh. From Forbes, and I'm going to open this. It was like literally, White House said there are no talks about lifting. And this is from a senior Biden administration. Um, said the White House had not held discussions about easing oil sanctions on Venezuela, um, which was prompted, which prompted uh, speculations this past Saturday that we might lift the, um, the embargo. Um, the official who was not named, he had denied it on Wednesday that an American delegation traveled to Venezuela to discuss oil. Hmm. Um, and then on top of that, but before then, there was like American officials met with Maduro over the weekend uh, <coughs> with the meeting details remaining largely unknown, you but know, like, this comes... Propaganda. You right. Know, like a media company coming in and saying, oh, they're talking about, you know, getting Venezuela reintroduced and there's actually no discussion of that at all. Right. So. But then there's also over the past weekend two Americans were freed. Mm. Um, Maybe that was a big topic there. That was part of that Sitco former executive at Sitco was a U.S. refining subsidiary of their um, one of the Venezuela's petroleum companies. Two Americans were in prison. They were just released over this weekend. So I don't know. That's success. That's success. Great. You know, I'm glad you know, that they were released. Um... But then now here's that murkiness. It's like, okay, well, you said that we were going to, that there were negotiations going on with regards to, you know, acquiring Venezuelan oil. But now an hour ago, you said there was no talk net. 
is this acquiring oil without lifting an embargo, but then again, that defeats the purpose of an embargo. But I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not saying that the White House has lifted this. I'm saying there's opposition within Congress. So Representative Gregory Meeks, who's the chairman of the of House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh -huh. he's the one who's saying, he's really saying, wow, these uh, Trump-era sanctions have only really deepened the misery of the Venezuelan people, and he wants them uh, totally done away with. And, I, and I'm not, he's, he's, not, he's not the one doing this, right? But I'm saying within Congress, uh -huh. there is, and it, I think that, that pressure will increase to lift these, the more gas prices rise. When you talk about Makes sanctions, sense. all there's something I actually want to talk about that's been very interesting recently. I've been noticing this in the past couple of months, is there's been a bunch more reports of the Venezuelan economy has been stabilizing recently, yeah. because what they've done is, the, supposedly Maduro has has changed a bunch of economic policies to make the country more of a, yeah. as a free market a free market economy. Myers are going back to Venezuela. Sounds like days. propaganda. <laughs> hey, it could be. He's it also saying be. he wants more dialogue with the U.S. So well, let's say it, it is like, probable, not highly probable. Like probably the only thing, well, yeah, no, <laughs> we're hearing we're hearing reports of the that the Venezuelans are trying to double back on some of their socialist socialist um, efforts, and there's even some reports that they're trying to reach out to opposition figures that are in exile of the country, as well as even this some Venezuelans ice. coming back. It's interesting to hear about this because for the past almost a decade now, it's been. It's been reports of the economy tanking and it becoming a repressive country, which yeah, makes no, <laughs> no way. Like <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's interesting about that. And maybe some people are wondering. Maybe they're trying to change the tune. But also, the other question is that does that mean that they? That, what does that mean for their relationships with Russia, with yeah, makes sense. China, and especially with Cuba, which? Is yeah. another scenario that no one really looks at. They don't realize how much Cuba is really operating in Venezuela. I will also even extend that to Iran. That is true too. Iran is there too, which is also apparently another country in which Biden was open to talks with as far as acquiring. And it. that was either today or yesterday is when uh, basically they offered a similar deal to what President Obama's Iran deal was instead right. of being a $200 billion. I think that was yesterday. Was yesterday. Yeah, I think There's so. There's an $80 billion agreement and. From the looks of it, it looks like the intent of the agreement is to add Iranian oil to the market and hopefully uh -huh. that'll drop prices. Uh, I was curious, um, who's the uh, uh, the press brief uh, individual for the Biden administration? P Pulaski? Pulaski? Pulaski. Pulaski, yeah. Uh, so she, there was an interesting uh, to and fro with a reporter she had either three or four days ago where... Uh, there are 9,000 permits for oil companies to, quote-unquote, access oil. Mm -hmm. uh, and he came back today and said, those 9,000 permits don't mean there's actually oil down there. Uh, so basically, the administration, or at least she was trying to say that oil companies aren't accessing oil on their own accord. They want the prices to be high. Uh, but in response, he says, well, most of the permits don't actually provide us access to oil. So I was curious if you guys knew what the actual answer to that was. Um, I have the, the, the oil companies are getting more money, but they're also not making as much per, per right. gallon. So like the profit is remaining the same because the price of production is increasing. So Yeah, but, but we also got to remember like <laughs> markets, they operate on fear, and, and they're not necessarily rational all the time. 
So just the threat of these things being cut off, that'll raise prices. Like, yep. I, mean, I mean, in D.C., gas prices have raised 80 cents in over three weeks. Yeah. It's very, it's very remarkable. So, I mean, and you, you're right, Wendell. I agree with everything you're saying, but yeah, fear is a powerful motivator right now. Oh, that's, that's a big one. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I think a lot of people are coming out saying that the oil companies are making a ton of money, but we mm. haven't even seen second quarter reports yet. Yeah. yeah. So how do we know they're making a ton of money? Yeah, that's true. That's I mean, they have point. to consider that it's kind of like pharmaceutical companies, and I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole. But if you look at pharmaceutical companies, yes, they make massive profits. No, no argument there. But you look at what their profits; they in? dump right. their profits right back into the company yeah. to make new uh, pharmaceutical right. elements yeah. or uh, uh, chemicals or right. medicines. So, uh, yes, you see a CEO get a thirty million dollar bonus. Uh, but if he's responsible for making five or ten new medicines that save thousands of lives, I'm like, we can argue what enough money is. But right. that, the point being is the response from the public looks like the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies are taking advantage of the American public, which uh, they may be. Right. But it's not nearly as bad as, as, as we perceive because a lot of that extra uh, liquid assets they, they obtain through profit go right back into the company for, for new assets. Makes sense. No, I agree. Well, we're now. I guess we can keep on talking about the Iran aspect of this. Um, it's just interesting that Biden is or is not. We don't. No, go ahead. no, no. Look, finish that. Is looking to reapproach Venezuela and Iran to further get their oil, I guess, on the market to address the prices. But at the same time, I mean, let's let's not kid ourselves. Talking about two nations that also cooperate with Putin's Russia, mm-hmm. um, especially I mean you look at Iran and the usage of their proxies um, in in Syria or across the Middle East, whether indirectly assisting Russian operations or making or both making sure that Bashar al-Assad stays in power, um, or even with Venezuela, their strategic position in, in South America, their position. In alignment with Cuba, um, as well as you know, both operating in black market sales. Um, well, that that's the I want a funny thing I want to talk about involving specifically Venezuela. Um, I feel this is more my opinion, but I do feel like if we were to look at the two, like Iran and Venezuela, I think it would be possible if the U.S. was committed enough to try to if they create more relations and they actively participate to. Um, Try to influence the Venezuelan government. They might be able to take out some of that, some of that Cuban, Cuban, and even some of that Russian influence. I feel like they would have a pretty good way to do it. As for Iran, I think that would be much harder because there's a lot more history there, which is, and yeah. which would be a huge problem. But I think with Venezuela, I think it would be very possible for the U.S. It just depends on what they do and how committed they are to do it. So what I was gonna get to your point. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't mean to cut you off, man. No, you're good. I'm done. Uh, <laughs> but uh, was the Iranian deal under the Obama administration successful? Uh, so I know, obviously, Republicans are going to say no. no. And Democrats <laughs> are going to say yes. Yeah. But the effects were what we saw during President Obama's administration. Uh, when did, when, what year did the Iranian deal go into effect? 14? I think it was 2014. 14, 14, 14, 15. So from 14 to 16, we saw Iran continue to, apparently, uh, continue to produce uranium or, mm-hmm. or uh, weaponized 
grade uranium. Mm -hmm. And I think it was 2015, early 2016, we saw uh, the Israelis deploy, or the Israelis deploy that virus that hit all those centrifuges. So this next next, that was 15? I'd have to look it up. I'll look it up right now. Uh, so, I mean, the Israelis, and that virus, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but from what I've heard, was actually created by the United States, deployed once, and then when we deployed so it. So, Stuxnet was actually 2010. 2010. Okay, so it had nothing um, to do with yeah, that. had nothing to do, yeah, so okay. when that, with that particular virus, um, so had nothing to do it, was, it had nothing to do with the JCPOA. Um, but the power of that, um, it damaged like 30% of their centrifuges. Yeah. And then it also leaked into other countries, including right. India. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. so, so my question is, is uh, e even with that being wrong, but even with that, uh, was, was it successful? So entering another deal that's similar in nature, I'm like, is that the right move? Well, um, the thing, what I remember from hearing about the Iran deal, the previous one to happen was, if I remember correctly, it was uh, something about either limiting the amount of uranium that Iran could produce or even just them not creating it. But I think it was for a period of like, what was it, 10 to 15 years, give or take? Essentially, it was to delay their capacity to get to a point of enriched uranium so then they can produce a nuclear warhead. So well, and, some, and, the, and the interesting, this is this is kind of ironic. Well, a big part of that nuclear deal was Iran had to send a major part of its low enriched uranium materials to Russia. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic looking at it now. Like, it, it, it's just kind of funny. I mean, who can look that far ahead? But like, yeah, we basically gave Russia more material to make nukes. Well, this is, if we're talking about the deal in 2015. Right, I know, but it's, it's just one of those Oh, man, weird, looks like we're going to bump up our numbers from 6,500 more. It's just one of those weird <laughs> ironies of the Iran deal. I always thought that was rather funny. But, anyway, what were you saying, Brian? No, like, I, from my understanding, well, as Samash just said, it sounded like it was more just a delay of yeah. Iran trying to create a nuclear war. And once the... Once that time period was over, then it was like, all right, we're able to do whatever we want. Let's go. And in my view, I don't think that's that great of a deal because in the end, they will get it. It will just be a delayed time period than what we thought. Well, it, could, it could be very similar to what Israel did to Iraq. I mean, like when yeah. Iraq built its nuclear reactor right before it was finished, they hit it. They, they hit it with an airstrike. They did. That is true. Man, so at this point, the same um, thing Iran, uh, at the time of the JCPOA was written, um, the, the idea was that essentially that Iran, they wanted to get Iran to the point where is that it would take them at least a year to produce one nuclear weapon, uh, one nuclear weapon, depending on how world powers responded. Mm -hmm. If they allowed it, it would take up to a year. JCPOA mm -hmm. essentially prolonged that process and they provided them. Incentives. So you think it was effective? I, I think it was effective in a way where it essentially pro it just. It gave breathing room. Breathing room, uh, but in that breathing room, Iran got some pretty crucial financial incentives. Oh no, their their economy went they up. Used that to right, supply that was, Syrian. Well, I was going to say that their economy activity went up and went during up. the time when the Iran deal was announced. And I remember even some. I remember even there was a lot more business going on in Iran, which was interesting. But the problem is that 
you know, we can do another episode on this, <laughs> is that, no, because this is a genuine fear that the notion of, in Saudi Arabia already said this, if Iran detonates a nuclear weapon, we're going to get our own and we'll just buy it from Pakistan. Hmm. So that now you have Iran being nuclear armed, you have Saudi Arabia it's nuclear armed, the UAE has already demonstrated capabilities to produce nuclear clean energy. And then you have the Israelis. That the Israelis who may or may not, quote unquote, have. We cannot confirm nor deny. America just happened to lose 200. In Israel. We found out. Turkey may then want it. Erdogan has has already demonstrated that notion. That look, so basically, a nuclearized a Middle East. Middle East. With How a frightening. This this sounds like a this sounds like a great show to put on. And then CC in Egypt, and you're just like, well, they got it, I want it. And then Gaddafi's son literally may win the president the presidential election. Right. And li- yo, literally, they took away his um, restrictions. He was barred from from running and winning. And their their elect their parliament basically took off his um Gaddafi 2.0 literally Gaddafi <laughs> 2.0 baby is it funny how we just discussed this last week and now it's just like oh we just took all the rules out of the yeah they did threw them out like, the window okay, and most likely he's gonna win so yeah Gaddafi 2.0 in Libya um CC who thinks he's Nasser um or Imhotep if you, how far in Egyptian mm. history you wanna go um so CC's chilling. You have Erdogan who in his Who wants the new Ottoman Empire. <laughs> um you have the UAE and it's like look at us. We're like in this artificial bubble uh with nuclear energy. Don't try us. And then you have Oman that's just chilling because it's Oman. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're doesn't even know where No, I just see anymore. if you've seen like Poland ball cartoon cartoons online, I just see like that Poland ball just chilling on a lawn chair and the entire chilling. neighborhood just blowing. Well that's up. because Oman has both defensive agreements with the UK and the United States since Sultan Qaboos, God rest his soul. Um, that's and- a good one. Oman, man. No you gotta watch out that. for that no, one. No, 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 see, they're, they're planning something. You gotta watch out for Oman. See, they're neither. I forgot, man. Oh this my. is this is another tangent, but Oman, they're neither Sunni or Shia. They're body, which, which makes them a perfect mid man, like mid-man. literally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the U.S. and Iran, literally. Switzerland, yeah, the Switzerland, the Middle East. And the thing is, can you say it again? When I'm there's American soldier station in Oman, which makes sense. Because during the, um, we had a uh, Patriot battery out of Lewis there. Well, uh, that's the only reason I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. That is right there. Um, believe it or not, Ibadis, um, well, I say traditional Ibadis, they do believe that if a government is not um, adhering to its po- to its uh, its obligations to the people, replace the it. people can replace it. Clack. Literally, and this goes back centuries. Mm. Wait, we're talking about Oman? Yes. Yeah. Yes, oh, it's literally. Right. It's all right. Part of, <laughs> it, but this isn't for Ibadis for that particular statement. That isn't just the political understanding. It's literally how they view a leader, 
And this goes back. So the reason why they're in Oman is because they were being persecuted in North Africa, which is where they were originally oh, they yeah. fled, that. and they fled to Oman. Uh, so I'm so glad you know this. I was I thought I was, I thought I was the only one. No. Like, for, okay. So fun fact: when I was at, I'm about to do my shout out, George Mason. Oh my university. god! Oh my god! He, he's, we, he's wearing a George Mason shirt now. He's coming out. Um, please think about sponsoring. The, the uh, no, they better. I took a Arab mass media uh, mass media door like the Arab Springs class. The teacher was his father was hired by Sultan Qaboos to help find oil. Mm. His grandfather is one of the founders of Aramco, mm. so he was raised in Saudi Arabia, um, but spent most of his time in, not just in Saudi Arabia before the um, the siege of Mecca. So that's when everything changed. 20, yeah. Um, in 78, 79. Um, but I digress. With the Ibadi faith, they have these different kind of views on leadership based on morality, justice, etc. And that they have literally three tiers. They even believe in the notions that in a time of war, they only believe in defense of jihad. So actual defense jihad. Mm-hmm. I won't attack you if you don't attack me. me. And if you attack me, God rest your soul. Hmm. Um, but they believe that in that notion, in that state of affairs, it's very important to have a strong leader to really not not just for moral purposes or kind of like Zelensky whole thing, not just for morality amongst the populace, but also morality amongst your fighting forces. This sounds like an actual action of a, what a Socrates' perfect republic was. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, what you're describing sounds oddly familiar when it comes to... Oddly like, familiar. Maybe um, they've uh, read They're like, excellent, Socrates. we'll do what this guy said. Like, <laughs> the Sultan Gobus, he literally was their first main... Literally, the philosopher king. Um, My <laughs> Literally, he was a philosopher king. Yeah. He, since 1970, he's the reason why mm-hmm. Oman is how it is are. today. Good. Um, Fantastic. To so. the point where he was the man to go to for Saudi Arabia and Iran to negotiate. To talk to each other? Mm-hmm. Because he's like, look. Because also, they have a sizable Shia population. Uh, they're both. But Iran understands they need Oman. And they need a middleman. They need a middleman. Saudi Arabia knows they need Oman. So they don't pressure them. They do all that squabble. Oman's like, look. Uh-uh. I think it, you know, just it go sounds... to Dubai, chill at the bar. <laughs> this like, honestly sounds really like what Lebanon used to be before the Civil War. I'm gonna say which cons- Civil War? The one in the fifties or the one in the seventies? We're talking about the seventies. <laughs> All right. Because sense. think about because Lebanon was like at one point considered the Switzerland of the Middle East. Yes, but, they were. But I digress. Let's Not go back to Oman. <laughs> but it's just to show you that. Um, but also, India values. Friendship and strategic friendships with Oman now, as well as the UAE, to the point where they're looking for to establish a naval base to get around China's uh, string of pearls. Hmm. Uh, Going back to Iran. Uh That's why we were talking. Yeah, about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know we went. We, was, we just we just went from Oman, the, uh, went from Iran all the way to the, Oman. The, the nuclear physicist uh, in charge, the head uh-huh. nuclear physicist in charge of nuclear production, was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that by itself may hinder production. Yeah. Because if any Iranian uh, head nuclear physicist is like, mm, he's going to kill me if I, uh, <laughs> if I make a bomb. So I'm going right. to slow down the process until I'm about 90 <laughs> and then get assassinated and then I'll be good to go. So but I'm just curious sense. that uh, like, just you only have to do it a couple times where they realize 
you know exactly what's going to happen if you go too far. Right. Um, and I think <laughs> I think this you're going to have a healthy median where Iran will always act like it's attempting to mm. build nukes, and Israel will act like it's going to kill everyone. Mm. But uh, it's it's but interesting though because I don't think they'll ever actually do it. But it was funny though. A lot of people don't know this, but Israel and Iran used to cooperate under the Pahlavi dynasty. Right. To the point, like, they were literally going to build surface-to-air missile systems together. They were looking at, like, missile and rocket well, technology. Talking about they before, had, right, that's what I'm saying. This is before, this is before 78, yeah. uh, which is, like, a lot of their projects was li- were literally terminated. But no, like, that back then, it was, there was a huge difference back then when the, um, before the Islamic Republic of Iran was created, like, there was a lot. Like you just said, there was a lot of huge relationships between Israel and um, right. pa- and Iran. I don't know why I almost said Palestine. Oh my god! But uh, <laughs> they were relations. It, it, rolls off, it rolls off the tongue. But, uh, the tongue, you know. but no, like uh, no, it, I think no because especially because both of those nations were the two nations in the Middle East that were not considered Arab. This is true, but also I mean you also have to remember the the uh, the eventual then growth of the the Truman Doctrine. Uh, which was essentially, which is why we're now in the Gulf. Mm. Um, Riyadh and Tehran were both seen as the two pillars of stability in the Middle East that we can essentially balance ourselves with to contain the Soviet Union. The thing is that with Palawi, mind you, this whole this whole thing about Iran is not in our uh, to do list today, but I love it. Anywho, um, Palawi understood this and was essentially milking the United States for military hardware. Um, as well as to get U.S. support to make Iran the dominant naval power of the Indian Ocean. So, but we kind of eventually well, put two and two together. Like, hey, random question. Yeah. Is that like I thought it was Palawi or something like that? Palawi. It, it sounded like you said Palawi. That's why I was like, both ways. okay. Palawi, Palawi. Okay, I was Same curious thing. because I'm just, I'm used to saying Palawi or something like that. So I was like, something you was off here. Palawi, Palawi. <laughs> Same thing. Same okay. person. Okay, just um, same person that was ousted. Um, and I, by a person that wasn't even in Iran at the time. He was in France. Um, and who talking about the Ayatollah. That's a like, he wasn't even in Iran. <laughs> he got like, he was flown back into Iran after the family was ousted and he must have been year. really good at texting in nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, you know, just using like the But it's interesting phone. though, because now look where we are, where there was a point in time where um Iran, just like during the early two thousands, so Bush was in charge, where they actually had these notions I know, had these notions of like civil like this discussions among civilization strategy. Where they were willing to essentially readdress their straining relationships with the United States, um, but the problem is, the the prime minister, no, the president of Iran wanted it. The Ayatollah did it. So, with that being said, it's like yeah, we can have those dialogues, and there was there were dialogues between George W. Bush and then Barack Obama first term, um, but once. Ahmadinejad came in, who was a Holocaust denier and oh was God. a complete Iranian hardliner, etc. His first time, apparently, he loves basketball uh, on Twitter. <laughs> he tweets every day about random American culture stuff. And I was like, you literally. It's as if maybe he was just high to get all along. <laughs> like, he loves basketball in Michigan, apparently. <laughs> like, you, have to, you have to consider that a lot of political leaders are kind of 
stuck in what they have to say. Yeah. Um, then he's free. Dictators, <laughs> democratic leaders, they have to respond to what the body, popula- body politic wants. Yeah. So as a dictator, you're only a dictator until the majority is like, mm, no, you're not. No, you're not. We're going to kill you now. Right. And so in a democratic uh, situation, you have to do the same thing. You just know you won't die when you fail. Right. Makes um, sense. So like, uh, when you have like... Um, I know people love hardliners. Uh, we'll be a, a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi, from the Republican perspective, is seen as like the worst. She's borderline communist in their eyes. But you have to consider it from her her uh, constituents mm-hmm. in San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. San Diego? I can't remember. San Francisco. It's like the second most liberal city in, in the, the United States. Well, she has to talk. <laughs> in the world, yeah. The world. World. She, she has to talk. Relatively liberal at all times, which will sound like insane to a Republican of any variety. Like, oh my gosh, look at this communist. And then on the flip side, when Ted Cruz talks, all the all the uh, Democrats are like, oh my gosh, this guy's like a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, Because they're just you know they they consider the polarization of opinions. But when you look at the vast majority of politicians, the vast majority of politicians, American or otherwise are going to say whatever they need to say to get elected. Yeah. And then if you look at what they actually vote for or actually action, it's very, very different. It's the, well, the median voter theorem. But that's the thing that people, I think, forget when they look at them. Specifically, American politics is they'll say what they have to do to get elected. That's 80% of the job right there is to get yeah. reelected. But their views that they may say on TV may not actually be the views that right. they actually believe in, and that could be good or bad in some instances, right. to be honest. I don't think it's good or bad. I think it, it's all about results, what they actually pass in legislation. Right. And so what we see right now in U.S. government, if we're going to go off on this giant rabbit hole. Too late. Too late. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> uh, what we see is the vast majority of authority actually rests within the president right now. Right, so right. we look through American history, sometimes the ju- judiciary has mm-hmm. power, sometimes the legislature. Right now, the president. the president for the last probably 30 years has had the vast majority yeah. of authority. Uh, and so trying to spin it back to the legislation would be really, really That's difficult. difficult. Uh, but uh, when you look at legislatures, the happiest politician comes from when there is a split House. Yeah. So when you see the the House of uh, Congress and the Senate being different parties, they celebrate because they can say they attempted to pass legislation, but the evil other parties stopped us. Right. And so now they can say that even even if their party requests them to you know like kill all the babies, they can say we tried to kill all the babies, <laughs> but they stopped us. And so I'm like well, you look at it from that perspective, it's but it makes ridiculous. sense. Though. It makes sense. And, and so now they can. Look like they're doing what they think the people want, but they can actually protect themselves from passing bad like, legislation. When Trump was president, for example, he had Republicans had both the House and the Senate, and they couldn't agree on a health care bill. Right. It's like, well, you literally had the government. Why couldn't you agree? And it's like, oh well, the Democrats they did sabotage this, that, Thursday, but you had both chambers. Uh, when I think that was one of the. The, the fears like just because a particular political party especially in the American system um, they let's say they have the house and the Senate mm-hmm. does not mean that within the party 
Okay. They're on the same side. Well, and it depends on what you're trying to emphasize to get past. I mean, health sure. reform might not have happened, but tax reform... Tax reform, was in, 100%. Yeah, I mean, so it just depends on what you got to right. emphasize Absolutely. and how many battles you want to fight on the domestic well, side versus what you're yeah, trying to do. Consider President Obama side. in eight years only was able to pass one major piece of legislation. That's, That's right. So he sold all his political capital to get the AHA, the American Affordable Care Act. Affordable Care Act. Medicare, Medicaid? And then he was Affordable Care Okay, Affordable Care And then he diverted into foreign policy. Policy, right? Because but that, see, that's all executive. He doesn't need. Yeah, he doesn't need exactly. Exactly. And that, and that's what that's what he needed to do as well. All right. Time, so. um, yeah. um, as much as this conversation is getting slightly, yeah, yeah. Think about it. we have foreign audiences, and I think they want to hear some other stuff too. Well, what, what, do you, love what do you American got? Trauma. What do you got, Brian? What do you got? Nothing. I don't know. I told you. <laughs> this might be a good place to wrap up. Yeah, we've up. been talking for about an hour and thirty-eight minutes. Uh, we're still good. Yeah, we covered everything. We cut literally. We cut. We did cover everything. We talked about Oman and there. Which I, I was so happy we. Like, <laughs> I've never heard someone talk about Oman before, so I'm very. Happy. I honestly, when he was alive, one of my favorite leaders was Sultan Qaboos. Yeah. R.I.P. Um, to the goat. All right, literally the goat. Yep. Did he re- recently die? Yeah, he yeah. died in 2015, 2016. No, twenty. Wow. In January. Is his replacement as as his cousin? Yeah, because he never had children. He, he didn't. Well, well we, we're not gonna get. I know it's about. <laughs> that. I will tell you that off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With that being said, uh, thank you all for tuning in, and until next time, uh, peace and love.